Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by Ladan Boroman to discuss the courageous and sustained uprising in Iran in the wake of Masa Amini's murder and the call for woman, life, freedom. Dr. Boromond is a historian, human rights activist, and the co-founder of the Abdurrahman Boromond Center for the Promotion of Human Rights and Democracy in Iran, an NGO that promotes human rights awareness, including through the Omid Memorial Online, which documents human rights abuses committed by the Islamic Republic and memorializes its victims. Protests, of course, continue in Iran. It's been more than 40 days since the murder of Masa Amini, and they also continue here in Canada and around the world in solidarity. And Dr. Boromon makes an eloquent case for that serious and continued solidarity, as well as for accountability and democratic reform. Ladan, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. You are a historian, but also a human rights activist. And you've written a great deal on this subject. And one thing you wrote struck me. You wrote, in the confrontation between Iran's pro-democracy activists and its Islamist state, the government's arsenal is made of violence and lies. And we've seen this play out directly on September 16th of this year. The 22-year-old Iranian woman, Masa Amini, who's who's now known, I think, all, all around the world for wonderful reasons in terms of her own courage, but also horrible reasons in terms of the response to that courage by the government. She died in a hospital after having been arrested in an entirely healthy condition by the guidance control or religious morality police of the government. She was arrested for the simple act of not wearing a hijab. And then there were lies. You have the Islamic Republic that claimed that she died of a heart attack despite multiple eyewitness reports seeing her severely beaten. Now, you have said she's an ordinary young woman with ordinary aspiration for a normal, happy life, but her name is now the code name for an extraordinary revolution for a normal life. And that seems entirely accurate as well. Yes, it is, actually. You know, there has been a lot of protest in Iran since the advent of the Islamic Republic. Uh, You are very young, but from day one, people started to protest. Uh, On March 8, uh, 1979, women went into the streets because Khomeini had started his first legislative act basically, was to uh, force Iranian women to cover their head. So, and then you had um, armed rebellion, you had guerrilla warfare against the Islamic regime, you had demonstration, then in the 1990s, you had the reform movement when we had uh, strikes, demonstration, protests, and all the time the regime has been um, dealing with these um, protest with violence. There is no other, there is no dialogue. Uh, The regime is unable to talk to its people and interact with its people. It represents God and God does not negotiate with its creatures. Basically, that's the basic foundation of the relation between state and society in Iran. And that's why it makes the society very uneasy and very turbulent. And, uh, but what, what the difference this time, I mean, we had the 2009, you remember, massive demonstration for um, where, where is my vote? Still at the time, people were trying to keep a dialogue with the regime. They were asking the regime for their vote. 
But since 2000 and, uh, 2017, we had a you know, uprising all around Iran, which was violently uh, crushed. And that was experts called call it a living condition uh, insurrection. But people were saying we don't want a theocracy anymore. Even during that uh, insurrection, they, they were saying to the mullahs, you are not qualified to, to manage a state. We want the separation of state and church. That was very clear in ordinary people even uh, were chanting these slogans. And two years later, we had another mass demonstration for the price of gas. Remember that? And they cut off the internet. And in in a week, they killed many, many people. I mean, Reuters reported 1,500 people. But when journalists did their investigation, they compared the mortality rates that period um, say November 19, uh, 2019 with the November 2018 and November 2017. And there was a gap of five, 6,000 people. So, wow. uh, yeah, and we never, we, we haven't been able to, to investigate these, uh, these cases properly, but there has been a lot of killing during that time. This time, what is different? I mean, at the very moment, if you remember when the 2000, and, uh, I don't remember, 17 or 19 uprising started, a woman stood up on a utility box, took off her way, and became the, the girl of the revolution street. And after she did that, many other women did the same thing and started this movement of civil disobedience before they were you know, filming themselves and sh- sending the videos uh, to Masih Ali Nejad. Do you remember to Celsi uh, Freedom uh, Facebook pages? Then in the, the last few years, you can see an evolution within the Iranian civil society in its um, fight against uh, the theocratic states. For instance, first women started to send their picture without veil to a website, to a Facebook page outside the country. Then they started to to wear white scarves and take it off on Wednesday in the streets of Iran. So from an effort to counter the regime narrative by showing what they believe in hiding, they came into the public space and showed it to the society by taking it off discreetly in the streets. And then with the women of the revolution street, they made a bolder statement. They went up a utility box and affirmed, and they didn't even discreetly do it. They made a statement to the states. And that was very subversive. And while women were doing this, men's attitude also evolved. First, they were indifferent then when the girl went on the utility box, they thought they kind of filmed her and sent the, the, the film to outside for, for the people to see. And they looked with sympathy. But for the Mahsa, when the girls came out angry at this death, they joined. They joined and protected women. So you can see the evolution of the society towards a radicalization against the Islamic State. And I think this is what makes um, this recent movement different 
from you know a quantitative development of this content we have been we have had a turning point a qualitative change in the trial of strengths between state and society and that is an a very crucial moment i think in the history of iran the middle east and the islamic culture i i want to stress that and the murder of masa amini is the spark in many ways exactly. and the protest against the mandatory hijab is a spark in many ways but the way you've just described it suggests this is about so much more and that have the protests which have now extended around the globe including here in Canada aren't going to stop no. simply if the repressive regime were to say well we're no longer going to have a mandatory hijab law because this is about so much more Yes, exactly. And the question is, first of all, each time before you could say this is for the vote, cheating by the government, then you could say people are, you know, unemployment. And this time with there are several things. First of all, Massa was a Kurdish girl. And the fact that the whole Iran stood up for her, neutralized the regime's propaganda of, you know, independence movement, disintegration of Iran's territorial and uh, unity and so on. And the, the very slogans that we are chanting, uh, women, life, liberty, were Kurdish originally. And we say it also in Kurdish. And so this shows that there is something that transcends the things that the regime tried to, to play with and to manipulate the public opinion with, which is uh, minor, ethnic minorities, religious minorities. And there is a, a unity of the nation around a very simple principle, which is life. And I want to come back to this notion of life because it's very important. When Khomeini came to power, he said, uh, we will improve your life conditions. We will give you free electricity, free water, etc., free housing. But basically, as he said this, he also said, but this is not the most important. What matters in, in my ideology is your afterlife in the other world. I want to change you into a godly individuals and assured that in after the resurrection, you are going to go to, to heaven. So basically, the, these states' objectives are not anchored within history. It's for the other, an otherworldly. Uh, and that's why when people say we want a normal life, is because the state's objectives and goals are not turned into this life. And people realize and this, this separation, they have subverted the notion of time in a way. And so that's why depression has grown in, into a really alarming situation in Iran, because for a young person, there is no future. The notion of future, building a career, having a life, all of these have been subverted. And when people chant, we want a normal life, and do you remember um, a singer who uh, who who created a song I, for the normal life, for holding my beloved hands, for kissing in the streets, for da dancing in the streets. All of these are basically the theoretical arms against the ideology of the Islamic regime. And this time, 
apologies for the system or you know the the lobbyists outside the world journalists think tankers and they, they the only thing that they are trying to say is that the morality uh, police is harassing women but it's not the point the point is people want to live that's it and this exactly. regime is a, i don't know how you say it in english is a mortifère in france it's death based ideology and this iranian society can't take it anymore i think that's the important turning point for this um revolution and it's not only a matter of life versus death in terms of uh the philosophical differences and to say we want to live freely and 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 live our lives fully in this life and the regime is focused on some absurd morality in in the life beyond but more than that it's a matter of life and death truly life and death today yeah. for activists and and when you say you've written this you say our enemy's arsenal is terrifying and we at first glance seem powerless in comparison but in reality we are stronger for we have the truth we have the truth and our commitment to it but we also have cyberspace something that previous generations of activists did not have we have cyberspace and with it the world as an audience we can spread the truth and let it subvert tyrannies at the same time you have truth and access to an audience a worldwide audience yeah. Yeah. but at the same time the government that that arsenal that they have is terrifying and we've seen hundreds of people murdered by security forces confronting the protests we've seen shutdown of the internet a tactic that you have rightly pointed out has been employed in previous protests we have prominent dissidents who have been put in solitary confinement their bones have been broken and and their lives are at risk mm -hmm. and the core question is do you think that the protests and and the desire to pursue that commitment to truth can be sustained as against that that terrifying arsenal in the course of the, these protests yes i think they 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 can and they are they are they are continuing because there is no other choice because yeah. there is no hope it's exactly. finished I mean, the young people have nothing to lose. This life is not is not a life that is in store for them. That's why they they tried everything. They tried to negotiate. They they tried to submit. They tried to understand. Uh, whatever they did was no response. It was all the time. Every negotiation. You should listen to women who tried during the 1990s to negotiate with these people. They submitted. They wore the the heads scarf they accepted many things they got nothing they and once they said what's the point but in a way you know the, the regime is also harvesting what it has sowed it has completely made impossible for people to organize as you say fantastic dissidents are rounded up again they are in prison hossein ronaqi majid tabakuri nagese muhammadi they are all in prison and then somehow with this girl you know i interviewed masi alinejad because she has been at the forefront of the fight with um mandatory hijab and she told me she didn't know the girl, the first girls who went up the utility box she had to you know to really frantically look to know who is this woman and then put her in touch with the nasrine sutude the lawyer the women rights lawyer and so on the the 
Problem is that since the regime made, made, made it impossible to organize, he had transformed every single woman into a ticking bomb. And they don't know where, they don't know when, because even the women don't know when they will decide to do something subversive. And in a way, they are faced with individuals who have become each of them a subversion, and they don't know when it's going to pop up and where. And I think the demonstrators and the society has become aware. Two things, and you know, for a long time, I have been saying this regime is gone. The only issue is that the population doesn't know it. The day they become conscious of their power vis-a-vis the regime, and they, this there is there will be a turning point. And I think now, civil society societies, member of the societies, they understand they are stronger than the regime. So I think this will continue. The question is how it, the strike could be sustained, how we can provide the solidarity and living uh, for those who go on strike and will be deprived of the salary. These are the issues that must be dealt with, and the world has a major role to play in supporting um, these people. And for instance, the Starlink issue is very crucial, very important that we we stay connected with the Iranian societies and could cover the situation and help people inside be informed of each other's and strengthen the network of solidarity that is in um, uh, information, which is also very new. And when you say... The world has a major role to play. There is a individual solidarity that I think many here in Canada desire to participate in. And we see that in the thousands of people who are attending protests, whether it's in Toronto, Vancouver, and, 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 right. and across the country. When we look at the government of Canada, we've seen certainly, I think on a few different occasions this month, we've, we've seen the government list certain individuals and entities for sanctions when we think of solidarity, how can we be most effective in delivering that kind of solidarity, whether it is at an individual level or even even better at a government level? We all know that these people have money outside country. They know they most of them, and because it was so easy to, to, to have Canadian um, passport, most of them have Canadian passports. I, I mean, Canada is a place, unfortunately, where Russian, Chinese, and Iranians have invested massively of the autocratic uh, section. Ordinary people, too. Uh, I have a cousin who's there, but um, there there is a lot of influence by these people. So our ideal would be, to, you know, the freezing of their assets. Those who are can be prosecuted, prosecution. Uh, but for now, there is one urgent thing that we all need, and all human rights organizations are focusing on that. And we think that the governments. Uh, Western democracies are kind of dragging their feet. They should do. We need a mechanism, an investigative mechanism up and running at the United Nations to hold those who are inflicting violence and are perpetrators right now during this uprising accountable. And this is feasible, uh, but we don't know. We would love Canada, France, or the United States to go behind this project. It's 
possible because right now we have a special rapporteur on the situation of human rights, but a special rapporteur is a volunteer individual who spends few months a year to work on that and has a translator for two months. So they, there is no means to do a proper job of investigation. And making sure these people are not, are held accountable will also strengthen the morale of you know, the citizens inside Iran, knowing that it's not only blah, 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 one minute silence or applause in a parliament. We need really action right now. And when you talk about accountability through a mechanism like that, what does it ultimately lead to in your mind? Because I've heard you speak and those who are listening should know the Abdurrahman Boruman Center. I mean, there are a number of things that you do, but one thing through the Omid Memorial is to maintain a record of injustices. And, w- and one way I've heard you speak about accountability is about the maintaining a record of state violence for historical justice. But there is also a deeply personal level of accountability to say these particular individuals need to be prosecuted. When you think of that UN mechanism, what level of accountability yes, do you see it operating? That is on? exactly. We did that in our work. You know, we um, we also commissioned um, um, an Australian legal expert, Jeffrey Robertson, for one specific crime of massacre in within prisons, and. In our work of preparing the transition and holding uh, perpetrators accountable, we asked him to qualify the crime. Uh, And so he investigated independently. He wrote a a report uh, and brought accusation against several people who were involved in these prison massacres in 1988. By chance, one of these guys was uh, traveling to Sweden and he was arrested based on Robertson report because it was ready. Otherwise, it would have taken months for a police or a lawyer to investigate and draft the charge charges. All of that was ready, and it was enough to for the, the man to be to come to Sweden to be arrested, and he has been condemned recently, found guilty by a uh, under universal jurisdiction by a Swedish court. So what we want out of this mechanism is that individuals be identified, their crime we investigated, and charge charge would be drafted and ready um, for the moment that we can hold them accountable. And if it's done at the UN level, we may have a chance to have a special uh, tribunal for the crime, state crimes of the Islamic Republic by the Security Council. Of course, with China and Russia, it won't happen um, so soon, but you never know what happens because Russia is in trouble right now and things can change. And if you are not ready, like we were by chance ready for this man, you, you, will miss, you will miss the opportunity. So I think we have to do that and also think this is a psychological warfare between state and society. And all of these acts by democracies or by um, democratic civil societies are moral ammunition in the arsenal of the Iranian people fighting for freedom and democracy. You mentioned the need to be ready. And uh, the accountability that you've just spoken of is an individual level of accountability that is crucially important. And 
there are many instances of injustice to point to and murders to point to and torture to point to and and repression to point to. But there's also, when we take a, a step back, there's also the need to be ready for transition. Yes. And your center does a lot of work in this regard as well. And when the spark happens and, and the moment happens for transition, if you haven't put that work in in advance, then it, it's it's not going to the transition is not going to happen in a way that that may be critical to its success. And so when we move away from the individual level crimes and mm-hmm. we look to the need for serious institutional and democratic reform and, and the protection of human rights that would ensue as a result of that, how do you see that unfolding? Yeah, the, exactly. I think this is, um, that's one of the reasons that we did uh, this is that in 1998, when the reform movement started in Iran with part of the ruling elite being the leader of this reform, we were kind of worried that truth would be pushed under the rug for political expediency. And we knew that if you uh, toy with truth in history, you will be Russian in your transition. And you don't want a Russian, uh, again, an autocracy coming because people don't want to talk about it. It's past, it's past. But also because all of these people who have um, been subjected to so much violence need acknowledgement, need remedy, need compensation. So what we did, what we are doing, of course, we are tiny and the crimes of 40 years of crime is huge. It's really symbol. It's still very symbolic. But our objective was several things. First of all, in that all human human beings have dignity, and there is no difference between our father, for instance, who was a pro democracy activist killed by the regime, and a wretched drug trafficker who has been denied all his rights and dignity as an accused and has been executed. Whereas probably he shouldn't have been executed. These two persons are equal in dignity as human being. And we wanted this for Iranians to understand because that's not an evident truth for a culture that is a tribal culture and has been autocratic, has never experienced um, democracy properly, really, in its uh, history. That was one point. And another point is to have a compilation of um, uh, the cases of state violence Another point was to tell our fellow citizen also that although nobody, you think nobody cares, somebody has been caring for your case. And without, you know, for instance, a friend of mine, maybe you know, she, he's uh, a lawyer, a Canadian lawyer, Kobe Shahruz. He, you know how we came to know him? He was typing his uncle's name one night because he was depressed. And he found the story of his uncle on Omid Memorial website. And he was stunned that people he didn't know, that people who didn't share the ideas of his uncle had spent time to memorialize him, created a page in English and in Farsi, has stressed the human rights that have been violated in his case. This is also a, a way of, as you know, totalitarian states try to isolate citizens from each other, make them enemy of each other. And this was our way of mending this separation, creating new links as a civil society. Maybe the state doesn't care, maybe the world doesn't care, but there are citizens, your fellow citizens somewhere who really care about you. So that was also another 
kind of peace building for the future that we started to do that. And um, lastly, this database when filled could serve the purpose of truth commission because there would be indication that in that area, in that time, there had been a gross violation of human rights, so they could do a better and more proper investigation. But there, there are tracks and traces of things that must be investigated uh, by future truth commission because we cannot replace without being on the ground a real truth commission. We are tiny. Again, we are not a big organization. You have also said the freedom of Iran and its preservation is a permanent task. I think the same is true, actually, of everywhere. Everywhere. When you say, you know, Iran has an ever fully experienced democracy, well, even countries like ours that have experienced democracy and in a really fulsome way, we have to make sure we hold on to that and yes. that their preservation is a permanent task. So I really like the way you put that. I also think you're exactly right when you talk about the essential correlation between secularization and liberal democracy. And you have written about the unprecedented legitimacy crisis that the Islamic Republic is confronted with, even as early as January 2020. You were, you were writing in the wake of the protests in 2009, 2017, 2019, and you were identifying what we are seeing today, yes. that, that legitimacy crisis is playing out on the ground in these protests, and that you have people on the ground saying, we're going to preserve our freedom in Iran. Yes, absolutely. And I think the Islamic, there is a, uh, an organization in the Netherlands uh, that does a survey, uh, free surveys, because most of the surveys that are done in Iran, of course, are controlled by the, the state, even when they have um, been done with collaboration with university like uh, Maryland University in the United States. But uh, Gamon is an institute that does survey and uh, has a way to mitigate the issues that comes with online surveys. But for Iran, the only free surveys that are safe are uh, online surveys where people are anonymous. And I commissioned them to do... Um, a survey about the religious leanings of, of Iranian people. And you wouldn't believe we had 50,000 respondents, which was a lot. And so this was mitigated by regional uh, social classes. And um, the only thing was that there was no illiterate. Everybody was literate in this participation. But the, the vast majority of Iranian people are literate. But the interesting thing is that people who define themselves as Shiite Muslims were 32.2%. Can you believe that? Iran is the country where you have, you have the highest rate of Christianization, if you don't know that. And uh, Sunni Muslim, 5%, agnostic, 5.8%. People who define themselves not religious, but believe in spirituality, 7.1%. Zoroastrian, 7.7%. And this shows that many Iranians, out of the desire to return their roots, consider themselves Zoroastrian without being really accepted into the Zoroastrian church because there are very limitations and so so on. But more importantly, atheists, 8.8%. 
So basically, we we are right now facing a very religiously very diverse society. You have Sunnis, Shiite, Christians, Jewish, and the Shia religion is not a majority. It's a third of the country. And people who say they have no religion, they have nothing, they 22.2%. So these are the realities based on which I wrote this article, showing that this won't go on forever. We are in a situation where the ideology of the Islamic Republic has been vanquished forever. And Iran is, I think, at a turning point that is also, I think, the Middle East. You know, I like to compare what is happening in Iran with the Christianization of the Roman Empire. It's as important. There is really historically, if you put it in the long-term perspective, this is a crucial moment in the history of the Middle East, the Islam, and the world as a consequence. So we need to stay tuned and support this dynamic because it's a very positive dynamic in in all of our histories. Well, I appreciate the advocacy of yourself and and many others who came before. And if the, if there's any way for us to work together, please let me know. And and otherwise, I really uh, I appreciate your time. And thank you I think, so much. And I think your core point is right around accountability, ensuring that there is for those who are engaging in such injustice that there be no impunity if they want to live a life here in Canada. Yes, so. and if if the Iranian knows that the world is protecting, try to protect them it will make a huge difference yeah and i think and i think my general sense is that the the government is pursuing that individual sanction path insofar as we've seen three measures announced on different days of updating the list and adding additional individuals adding additional entities but i what i will also take back is this idea of working through international bodies for an additional mechanism for accountability. Exactly. That would be really very helpful. And and if in any ways we can help, and Amnesty International has put as a petition the demand. So if your constituency can sign the petition, it will, you know, show your government that there is a public opinion strongly committed to that. I think it would make a difference. Yeah, thanks very much. Well, again, I appreciate your advocacy. I really appreciate you joining me. Thank you so much for having me, really. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. It's been inspiring to see the solidarity around the world and the incredible courage by those standing up for equality and human rights in Iran. Our Canadian government has, three times this October, added to the list of entities and individuals on the targeted sanction list and taken action to list those connected to the Iranian regime and the IRGC, that's more than 10,000 officers and senior members, as inadmissible to Canada for terrorism and systemic and gross human rights violations. There's also been more than $75 million set aside to strengthen Canada's capacity to freeze and seize the assets of sanctioned individuals. And that's where I think much of the action is, because it's one thing to designate a sanction and another more serious thing to enforce it by way of asset seizures. And we need to see these sanctions in action in a serious way. As always, if there's a guest or topic you'd like me to cover, you can reach me at beynate.ca or beynate on social. Dr. Boromond was suggested to me by more than one person, but notably by a former mentor of mine, an Iranian-Canadian lawyer, Atusa, who wrote on her own social media that sharing stories out of Iran helps raise awareness and just maybe will lead to change, accountability, and justice. 
So keep sharing those stories and otherwise, until next time.